0: Hello, my name is Ho Jun Yoon. You're listening to Medicine on the Way. It is August 2013, and this is episode number 12. And today's topic is diabetes insipidus. Diabetes insipidus is a deficiency of or resistance to arginine vasopressin. Before we discuss more, let us briefly review the physiology of arginine vasopressin. The posterior pituitary produces two hormones, arginine vasopressin, also known as antidiuretic hormone, and oxytocin. Vasopressin is synthesized by a polypeptide precursor that is encoded by a gene on chromosome 20. The hormone is stored in neurosecretory vesicles ready to be released into the blood circulation. What then causes the vasopressin to be released? Specialized hypothalamic cells called Osmoreceptors regulate the secretion of vasopressin. Osmoreceptors are very sensitive to a change in plasma sodium concentration. The sensitivity to plasma sodium concentration may be different person to person. However, a set point of sodium osmolarity for vasopressin to be released is generally 135 mEq per liter. In a serum osmolarity above this set point, plasma vasopressin rises rapidly to retain water diluting the plasma concentration. A level only 2-4% to higher than the set point can produce a maximal effect of antidiuresis. When the plasma osmolarity is below the set point, secretion of vasopressin is suppressed to minimize the amount of water retained in the body. Besides the sodium concentration, there are other factors triggering vasopressin secretion. They are glucocorticoid deficiency, smoking, acute hypoglycemia, and nausea. Especially nausea is a strong stimulus for vasopressin secretion, increasing plasma vasopressin level up to 100 times. The set point of vasopressin secretion can be reduced by hypotension, hypovolemia, estrogen, pregnancy, and menstrual cycle. The primary function of vasopressin is to increase water resorption in the distal tubule of the kidneys. Vasopressin circulates in the blood and attaches to receptor on the principal cells of the distal tubules. The receptors are called V2 receptors, and they are located on the serosal surface of the principal cells. As a reminder, serosal surface is the side facing the blood vessels and the luminal surface is facing the inside of the tubule where the urine flows. The vasopressin attached to the V2 receptors induces formation of water channels called aquaporin-2 on the luminal surface. The formation of aquaporin-2 permits water to go into the cells and the water then exits to the blood circulation via other water channels called aquaporin-3 and aquaporin-4. I want to clarify that we're dealing only with water. The principal cells are normally impermeable to water, but in the presence of vasopressin, water gets reabsorbed while making the urine more concentrated. A normal, healthy person would filter 180 liters of plasma every day. About 80% of this gets reabsorbed in the proximal tubules and 5% in the descending loop of Henle. The rest, which is about 24 to 27 liters, flows into the distal tubules. In the absence of phasopressin, water does not get reabsorbed into the principal cells And more than 20 liters of urine is excreted in a very diluted state that can be shown with specific gravity of 1.000 and urine osmolarity of 50 milliosmol per liter. When vasopressin is at its maximum effect, however, you can imagine the urine flow decreasing and the urine osmolarity increasing up to 1,1200 1,200 milliosmol per liter. Vasopressin is usually metabolized by the liver and kidneys. During pregnancy, metabolic rate of vasopressin increases because of production of an N-terminal peptidase from the placenta. Thirst is another important concept when we discuss vasopressin. Our body cannot retain sufficient amount of water just with vasopressin. We constantly lose water by breathing vapor out, sweating, and urinating a tiny volume to dissolve the solute. So we have to hydrate ourselves by drinking water. Thirst is regulated by an osmostat in the hypothalamus. The set point of thirst is roughly 5% higher than the vasopressin set point. This, This explains that we feel thirsty and dilute our body fluid after vasopressin exceeds its capacity to retain water. When the secretion or action of vasopressin falls below 80%, urine concentration stops and urine output rises. In diabetes insipidus, polyuria results in only one to two percent decrease of body water, and this increases plasma osmolarity and sodium concentration and triggers thirst. Knowing how much vasopressin has to be deficient to show the symptoms of diabetes insipidus, and how a small change in needs to trigger thirst. We can presume hypernatremia and other signs of dehydration tend not to develop unless there is a defect to feel thirsty or there's no water to drink. Now we have some ideas about vasopressin. Let us get back to our main topic today, diabetes insipidus. Remember how I define diabetes insipidus. Um, When I make each episode of Medicine on the Way, the first sentence is always difficult because I try to give a simple, concise, yet comprehensive definition of diseases. In diabetes insipidus, I gave two components, deficiency of vasopressin and resistance to vasopressin. Vasopressin is deficient when there isn't much production in pituitary gland. Reduced production of vasopressin is called central diabetes insipidus, and it can be either primary or secondary. Primary central diabetes insipidus accounts for about one-third of all cases, and these are usually due to autoimmunity against vasopressin-secreting cells in hypothalamus without any lesion seen by MRI. Central diabetes insipidus can be genetic with an autosomal dominant form. A mutation in vasopressin neurophysin 2 gene changes the process of of folding prohormone, which is precursor of vasopressin. Accumulation of the falsely folded prohormone results in vasopressin deficiency And diabetes insipidus develops gradually over months to years after birth. An autosomal recessive form due to mutation of the WFS1 gene causes Wolfram's syndrome. Wolfram's syndrome is characterized by an acronym DIDMOAD, which stands for diabetes insipidus, DI, diabetes mellitus, DM, optic atrophy, OA, and deafness, D. Secondary central diabetes insipidus is caused by a direct damage to hypothalamus or pituitary stalk. The damage occurs with hemorrhage, tumor, infarction, trauma, infection, hypophysitis, or granulomas. Trauma to hypothalamus and pituitary stalk results from surgeries. The surgically induced diabetes insipidus appears usually within 24 hours of procedures, and progresses to a period of inappropriate antidiuresis for two to three weeks. Vasopressin can be also deficient because of increased metabolism or inhibited secretion by excessive fluid intake. During pregnancy, an N terminal aminopeptidase is produced by the placenta. This enzyme destroys native vasopressin. Sometimes the osmostat in the hypothalamus malfunctions. Patients sense more thirst. Than they should, so they take excessive amount of fluid. As a result, vasopressin secretion is suppressed. These two causes of diabetes insipidus are referred to gestational diabetes insipidus and dipsogenic diabetes insipidus, respectively. We have talked about deficiency of vasopressin so far, and let us hear more about the resistance to vasopressin. When we say the resistance to vasopressin, we can assume there is a problem with the kidneys instead of pituitary glands or hypothalamus. Production of vasopressin may be proper, but action of vasopressin to the principal cells of the distal tubules in the kidneys is not functioning well, and we call this nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. Nephrogenic diabetes insipidus can be genetic. And remember how vasopressin works to reabsorb water in distal tubules. Vasopressin attaches to the V2 receptors. And this complex promotes the production of aquaporin-2 water channels. Water reabsorption can be inappropriate when there is a mutation in generating the receptors or channels. Acquired nephrogenic diabetes insipidus is associated with renal amyloidosis, pyelonephritis, sickle cell anemia, myeloma, Chagrin syndrome, potassium depletion, chronic hypercalcemia, or drugs such as corticosteroids, diuretics, lithium, or phoscarnet. The signs and symptoms of diabetes insipidus include intense thirst, polydipsia with fluid intake from 2 to 20 liters per day, polyuria, aneuryses, or nocturia-disturbing sleep, which in sequence causes daytime fatigue or somnolence. Diabetes insipidus is diagnosed clinically. With the signs and symptoms just mentioned, a 24-hour urine collection is ordered. If the urine volume exceeds 50 milliliter per kilo per day and the urine osmolarity is less than 300 milliosmol per liter, diabetes insipidus is confirmed and then we should identify what type of diabetes insipidus it is. Fluid deprivation test is performed to differentiate severe diabetes insipidus from partial diabetes insipidus body weight, plasma sodium, and osmolarity, urine volume and osmolarity are measured hourly. A severe diabetes insipidus is shown by plasma sodium or osmolarity increasing above the normal limit or body weight increasing by 5% before urine gets concentrated with osmolarity more than 300 milliosmol per liter and specific gravity higher than 1.010. Severe diabetes insipidus can further analyze with vasopressin challenge test to determine whether it is central or nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. By giving a subcutaneous or IV desmopressin, urine osmolarity is measured 1 to 2 hours afterwards. More than 50% increase of urine osmolarity indicates severe pituitary or central diabetes insipidus, whereas a smaller or absent response suggests nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. If fluid deprivation test demonstrates a partial diabetes insipidus, measurement of plasma vasopressin with hypertonic saline infusion and continuing fluid deprivation test are performed instead of vasopressin challenge test changes of plasma vasopressin level per plasma osmolarity help determine whether it is central versus nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. These tests may sound confusing because we're dealing with severe versus partial diabetes diabetes insipidus and central versus nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. So let us dumb it down a little bit. First, we're keeping patients from drinking any fluid to see if their body can reserve water. If they can retain water, the urine gets more concentrated because they're excreting less water. The concentrated urine is demonstrated as noted above. The urine osmolarity greater than 300 milliosmol per liter and specific gravity higher than 1.010. So we're thinking a partial diabetes insipidus in this case. On the other hand, if patients keep urinating large amount even after we stop giving any fluid, their body is not working as it should because they don't save the water. From the water loss, their body weight decreases by more than 5% before their urine gets concentrated. This is called a severe diabetes insipidus. Once we know it is a severe diabetes insipidus, we give desmopressin to see if it is a problem with deficiency or resistance. When vasopressin is deficient because of less production from pituitary, patients would feel better if we give vasopressin or desmopressin in this case. Their symptoms may disappear and the bodies can concentrate urine after giving desmopressin. However, when their kidneys are resistant to vasopressin, it doesn't matter whether we give desmopressin or not. Their kidneys are already resistant to vasopressin, so their symptoms and urine concentration remain unchanged even after desmopressin is given. MRI of pituitary and hypothalamus can help differentiate primary polydipsia from central and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. In normal healthy adults, the posterior pituitary emits a hyper-intense signal in T1-weighted misagittal images. However, this bright spot is sometimes absent or small in central and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. A normal bright spot helps rule out pituitary and nephrogenic diabetes insipidus and suggest primary poly- polydipsia. MRI of the pituitary and hypothalamus is helpful to detect any mass lesion as well. Partial diabetes insipidus generally does not require treatment other than moderate fluid intake. Desmopressin is the treatment of choice for central and gestational diabetes insipidus. Desmopressin is a synthetic vasopressin which works on V2 receptors of the principal cells, reducing urine volume and increasing the concentration. Desmopressin works quickly and with longer duration than the natural vasopressin. It works for the pregnant because desmopressin is not degraded by the enzyme or vasopressinase. Desmopressin can be given orally, intranasally, IV, IM, and subcute. Desmopressin may cause hyponatremia since it helps retain water. However, it is uncommon when minimally effective doses are used and patients allow thirst to occur periodically. Side effects of desmopressin include emotional changes, depression, and agitation. For nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, hydrochlorothiazide has been used as the main treatment. It sounds very paradoxical because we're giving a diuretic to reduce urinary output. However, hydrochlorothiazide has been used for many years for nephrogenic diabetes insipidus and the exact mechanism of how it works for nephrogenic uh, diabetes insipidus is still unknown. One theory is that an increase of sodium loss by hydrochlorothiazide reduces GFR, which then promotes sodium and water reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubules. Because a prostaglandin appears to inhibit the effect of hydrochlorothiazide, prostaglandin inhibitors are concurrently used with hydrochlorothiazide. Diabetes insipidus itself does not reduce life expectancy. Diabetes insipidus is rather inconvenient because of the disturbances to normal lifestyles, such as sleep or any activity. Okay, this is it for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe. My name is Ho Jun Yun. This is Medicine on the Way.